Okay, welcome to the Neural Network solo episode today. Uh, a couple quick updates. The website, www.theneuronetwork.org, is back up and running. Uh, I took it down for a little bit because didn't feel like selling off a kidney and taking out a loan on a mortgage in order to keep the website up and running. But uh, the second that we took it down, got a bunch of emails and texts and things like that saying, where's the website? So anyways, uh, in recovery from taking out that kidney and it's back up and running now. Uh, besides that, had three papers accepted this week. That's wild. Three papers in one week. Anyways, um, I had a paper accepted in the Journal of Physiology, another one accepted in the Journal of Physiological Genomics, and a third paper accepted in Nature Communications, all very good journals. So I was the first author on one of them and a co-author on the other two. So once they are finally in their published and final polished versions, you know, because they have to go through the editing team where, you know, they check over everything and stuff like that. It's already through peer review, but it has to check all the other stuff like for typos and make sure that it uh, aligns with the format that the journals have, because all journals have a different format, uh, which makes things a little tricky sometimes. Um, then we will hopefully be able to do a show where we go over the Results, findings, implications of that. And I'll try to see if I can get the other authors of the papers to join. So that's exciting. So what I wanted to do today for this show was go over a paper. This will be a little bit of a shorter show, I'm, I'm assuming, that I thought was super interesting. Uh, came out in the Journal of Neuroscience very, very recently. Looks like it was published August 10th. So when recording this show, it was... Uh, published about a week ago, 10 days ago. And it was by Clayton Hickey, uh, David Asunzo, and Jacqueline, or yeah, Jacqueline Dell. I probably mispronounced those names, so apologies. And they are from, let's see, University of Birmingham in the UK. And uh, I thought it was a really cool study. And it was looking at something that is somewhat relevant to us every actually not even somewhat, it's super relevant to us every day. And it involves a very important system that's catching a lot of traction in the media lately, that being the dopamine system. And so basically, I uh, just wanted to go over that paper and talk about, you know, how the results from this paper and how it was done have real world implications into how we're able to modify our our attention. Uh, so basically within a visual field, you're always attending on something at one time for the most part, unless you're just blankly gazing. But, you know, you have your, your visual field, which is basically everything that you can see in front of you and to the sides and all that kind of stuff. But within that visual field, you're, for the most part, typically attending on something within that visual field at one time, and it sort of draws our attention to it. And, you know, there's certain hypotheses that have been put forth in place as to what modulates whether or not we attend to one thing over the other. And, you know, do we com have complete control over it even? So it's getting into a question of consciousness and how do we uh, look at certain things versus the other and what's our preferential placement of our vision and all that kind of stuff. So basically, you know, have you ever really wondered why some objects grab our attention and others don't. And do we have, you know, even complete control over it? You know, because within any certain visual field, 
You're always going to have things that you're going to want to attend to based on a given motivation or a task specific type of thing that you're doing. So like if I want to fix a chair, you know, I need to be able to attend to that chair and I need to be able to somewhat blur out the other things that are going on around me in order, you know, those things are considered distractors, right? Same thing with when you're driving, you want to focus on the road, you don't want to be focusing on certain other things. And of course, you know, we tend to behaviorally exploit some of these things by adding specific distractors in order to take our attention elsewhere. And it's somewhat, you know, debated ethically as to whether or not placing certain distractors, you know, like billboards and stuff on the side of highways that are designed to have like these vibrant colors and these cool images that are trying to draw our attention over to them, if it actually distracts from you know, the actual purpose of what our main attention should be, such as, you know, making sure that you don't hit someone and and staying on the course. So that's sort of, you know, what it's kind of looking at. And, and it's sort of testing some of the hypotheses within that field. And I thought it was super interesting. So let's take a look. All right. So first and foremost, I think it's kind of important to lay out The dopaminergic system, like I said, has been catching a lot of attention in the media lately, whether it be from ice baths or whether it be from modulating the amount of screen time that you're looking at. You know, basically, uh, it was talking a lot in the media lately about how our dopaminergic systems have become somewhat desensitized or how we can modulate the ability of the dopaminergic system to react to certain stimuli that can change how we feel. So, The dopamine system itself, so dopamine is a neurotransmitter, and it's produced in areas of the brain, such as the substantia nigra, the ventral tegmental area, and the hypothalamus. And it has many roles in different brain functions, but a lot of what uh, it does, among other things, is being involved, or it's one of our main chemical signaling messenger systems for reward and motivation. So basically, like if you imagine when you bite into your favorite dessert, or you've, you know, achieved a goal that you've been working hard for, you get a feeling of pleasure and satisfaction. And so basically, that's dopamine doing its work at its finest. So dopamine essentially is released from many different areas when we anticipate or we receive a reward you know so if we're anticipating something that would give us pleasure or uh, we've engaged in a task that gives us pleasure essentially dopamine is released from those areas that produce it and uh, the primary center at least as it's you know known now is that when this dopamine binds in in an area called the nucleus accumbens within the brain Uh, that that's what gives us that sensation of of pleasure. And, you know, this is also the system that's oftentimes exploited for addiction. And in fact, you can can replicate addiction, like to say cocaine, for example, by stimulating the dopamine uh, release that goes and binds into the nucleus accumbens without cocaine actually even being there. And so you can sort of artificially stimulate some of these addictive type of behaviors and you can reinforce addiction by modulating the dopamine and and that's where it gets a lot of its uh you know attention in the media is the fact that social media looking at screens um essentially desensitize 
our ability to feel dopamine. Because when you're scrolling on TikTok or you're scrolling on your Instagram reels or whatever, you're essentially looking for something that will give you an anticipation of a pleasurable response, whether that be humor, whether that be knowledge, whatever it might be that you're seeking at that moment. Once you get that sort of brain scratch, you know, you have that itch for something that you're looking for, but you don't quite know what it is. Uh, you're essentially changing, you're, you're essentially looking for things that are giving the biggest hit of dopamine. And, and obviously videos that are very good at stimulating the dopamine are very good at understanding and creating these, these simulations, whether they even know it or not, that are good at, att- at grabbing our attention and giving us that sensation of pleasure, giving us that reward that we're looking for. Again, it's going to be completely context dependent. At one point, you might be looking for knowledge. Another point, you might be looking for humor. Another point, you might be looking for, uh, I don't know, sad videos to give you context to your own sadness. So that's sort of how this this plays in. And the idea is that, you know, the more that you're sort of um, exposed to these high dopamine triggering events, the less dopamine you're going to get released for every subsequent exposure to them. And so that's the same way that addiction forms. And so, you know, basically the next time that you go to look for a video, you need something even more and more and more and more and more. And it needs to be, you know, to the point where it's just this wildly crazy stimuli in order to actually give you the dopamine response that you're looking for. And so it's said that we somewhat become desensitized. And, you know, there's methods out there that are uh, targeted towards changing how this dopamine system or excuse me, this dopamine reward system uh, can be resensitized you know, talking about reducing the amount of screen time, modulating when you actually look at the screen time, the content that you're exposing yourself to, things like that. Or, you know, figuring out how you can get natural releases of dopamine out in nature type of things. And, you know, this is one of the things with like the ice baths, for example. Ice baths are very much targeted towards modulating the amount of dopamine. You know, you get this big dopamine rush or something that's supposed to last for a long time to give you that feeling of pleasure and euphoria once you submerse yourself in the ice water. And, you know, perhaps it could be healthier uh, for you than trying to get that dopamine fix from drugs or from uh, social media scrolling or anything like that. Uh, you know, but it, it's worth understanding that either way, you're still you're still reinforcing a habit that gives you a hit of dopamine. And so you're somewhat just replacing one addiction for the other and possibly, you know, it might be healthier to uh, replace a scrolling habit with jumping in ice water. But again, it's worth just like understanding the basis that it's not magic. Like these things aren't magic. It's just trading one thing that gives you a dopamine hit for another thing that gives you a dopamine hit. And whether it's good or bad is going to be completely contextually dependent. Okay. So with that in mind, dopamine also though, isn't just about pleasure. It's critical for motor control, like the substantia nigra, which is another part of the brain that's rich in dopamine. And you can, you can tell that area of the brain when you look at a cross section of the brain, it's very dark. That's why it's called the substantia nigra. Um, and its main role is to modulate release of dopamine in order to control our movement. So, so dopamine is one of the major neurotransmitters that's used in our brain to allow us to to move. And so when you have a loss of dopamine signaling, this is what gives you Parkinson's disease and it gives you those classic tremors and things like that. And then finally, you know, for much for relevancy for the paper that I'm going to talk to is that dopamine plays a big role in cognition and focus. So it helps us to pay attention, make decisions. And of course, like I said, it can kind of regulate our mood. 
So if you've ever had a day where you felt particularly like in the zone, you're focused, dopamine has a big influence on setting that brain state. And like I said, when it comes to dopamine, one thing that I want to say and one thing that I want to be very opposing to a lot of some of the social media posts is that dopamine and the and the release of it and the balance of it is all about just that. It's about balance. Too much dopamine is bad. Too little dopamine is bad, right? So too much dopamine, especially in like the brain's frontal lobes, is very much uh, linked to conditions such as schizophrenia. And on the other hand, low levels of dopamine within these areas are also very much associated with feelings of like apathy, lack of interest, and low motivation. So this is all things associated with conditions such as depression. So in the world of you know neuroscience itself, dopamine is is a subject of immense research at the moment. And you know basically, in summary, like it, it's it's intricate balance influences like our behavior, decisions, our overall well-being. So that's just sort of the little two cents that I wanted to give on dopamine before we dive directly into the paper. So, okay, the the paper itself is titled Suppressive Control of Incentive Salience in Real-World Human Vision. So I talked about the visual system being very much important. And, of course, you know, as we can see, it's, it's usually on when we're awake. And our ability to attend two things is very much influenced by the reward that we get from attending to a certain object. So historically, studies have shown that simple stimuli like color or shape can capture our attention if they're associated with the reward. And so, you know, if you have gotten pleasure from riding in a Lamborghini or there's some sort of uh, association of pleasure with the Lamborghini, for example, then when you're driving down the road, you'll be able to notice a Lamborghini. It'll stick out a lot more than that of, you know, just a a normal everyday run-of-the-mill car. And so there's certain things that grab our attention. And it's sort of debated, you know, as to within the field, what it is that actually does that. We know that if something is able to grab our attention, most likely it's going to have a dopamine type of release, or it's going to have a pleasurable uh, sensation that comes along with it, and and a lot of the the historical studies have primarily focused on simple stimuli, whether it be changing the color or changing the shape, the simple type of shapes and colors and all that kind of good stuff. And in the intro of the paper, it talks about uh, it's called called these synthetic objects, so basically circles, squares, lines, or gabber patches, which gabber patches are basically just like blurry type of it kind of looks like basically like if you're looking at a telescope it's some faraway galaxy and you just see like some lines or whatever that are somewhat blurry black and white that's that's basically that and so they're usually somewhat saturated uh in primary colors and basically like they're looking at your ability to pick out a certain shape with a certain you know they do some paradigm where attending to within the visual field to a certain shape will give you a reward, whether it be food, money, whatever. And over time, you learn to associate that certain shape or that certain color with the rewarding stimuli. And so the idea is that you're more likely to focus on that than you are to something else. So if you post like a, a picture, like a very big picture or a VR headset that has, you know, a circle and a square and a triangle and an X and all that kind of stuff. And you've associated that red circle 
with a monetary reward or, you know, a food type of reward, something that that has been trained into, you're more likely to attend to that object. Or conversely, if you're told to look at the X, for example, even though there's, you know, no reward associated with it, the idea is that it's going to take you longer to find that X if that red circle that has been associated with the reward is present within the frame. And so it's sort of this idea that if there is something that is able to grab your attention, it's going to affect your ability to actually attend to the task at hand, right? Which doesn't, you know, is not all that surprising given real world examples. So like, again, going on to the social media thing, like if your phone is with you, if you know that looking at your phone gives you that rush of dopamine, that's going to give you that sense of pleasure, then if you have your phone in front of you, even if you're not using it, it's going to be drawing your attention away from whatever it is that you're doing, even though, you know, what you're doing may or may not actually give pleasure because you know that there's always that one thing that your mind kind of wants to attend to, which is the phone, which is going to give you that sense of reward because, you know, deep down we're all kind of dopamine junkies at the end. And that's how, you know, dopamine very much uh, influences our behavior and our uh, how we view the world, essentially. So one of the the biggest criticisms, though, about this simplistic type of hypothesis, especially when it's tested in the lab using synthetic objects, like I said, like circle squares, lines, gabber patches, whatever it might be, is that it's a very simulated trial. It doesn't represent the naturalistic scenes that we have within our visual field at any given time. You don't just have a black background and a bunch of shapes. Sometimes you do, but for the most part, you don't. We have in our natural visual field, there's very complex imagery. You have, you know, the addition of 3D. Things are given different different depths, and you have very complex shapes that aren't have that don't have these very rigid outlines. And things are are complex in color. There isn't just these bright, vibrant neon colors that are just present at one time. It's a very, you know, distributed array of shapes and colors and all of that kind of good stuff. And and so when you have this distribution of very complex shapes, very complex arrays, instead of just having like this binary, yes, this image gives me pleasure or no, this image doesn't give me pleasure, the images that are present within our visual field at any given time are going to have, you know, things that are kind of giving us pleasure and things that don't give us pleasure and things that have, you know, somewhat of a, a opposite type of response. They elicit sort of a fear and withdrawal type of, of thing. And so the question really that is being addressed within this paper that I thought was really cool is how can we take some of these findings that we've, uh, you know, known based on these synthetic object type of trials and do they translate over into naturalistic search with real-world images? And if you're given a task to, to locate certain things or certain objects within a naturalistic scene, so just think of like a, a picture of the world, and you're told to find one thing within that picture, but scattered throughout that picture are certain things that are naturally known to give us reward, how are those distractors able to influence our ability to find objects or to be able to focus or attend on certain objects within a naturalistic scene. And I think that's really cool uh, because it actually, you know, puts it out into a real world situation. And they used uh, different techniques 
to test uh, what was basically collectively known as the incentive salience hypothesis. So um, basically the incentive salience hypothesis just kind of says that basically that the salience or the ability of something to be noticed uh, or to be prominent is associated with the incentive that comes along with it. And, uh, and just like a, you know, easy example of it, which I've kind of gone over already, but basically like uh, a classic example of a sense of salience hypothesis that you can use is like when you see a notification, you know, on a lot of the phones, at least not if you, well, not on the iPhones, but on a lot of the Androids and especially, you know, the older people that are, have the flip phones and stuff like that at one point, you know, it had a notification light like that was red or green or whatever and if you had a text or if you had a call or something it would blink and uh it's it's one of those like if you see this blinking red light on your phone and you know that your phone gives you pleasure that you're going to be likely to have that distracting you at all times so that you are motivated to actually check that to see what it is so that's got or you know what it could be the other way around i know when i was a teenager if I had a blinking missed call that it was from my mom or something like that, that I would be scared to death. And so I didn't want it. So I would, that would be, you know, it would still be actively, uh, taking my attention away by making me feel feelings of fear, but it wasn't necessarily, uh, incentive based anymore. Great. So onto the study, uh, basically, like I said, the objective was the researchers really wanted to see essentially if that concept of incentive salience applies to, real world objects. So like if a type of car that once gave you a feeling of reward, would that car in a visual field always grab your attention in a photograph? Uh, if other objects within that visual field were trained to give you a reward as well. And so they did that by training different rewards so training different visual stimuli, whether it be a person, a car, plant, anything like that, uh, where there was a monetary value associated with seeing images of that. And so you can sort of train certain images to be more rewarding or not. And then they placed a bunch of different images that had either a car or a person or a plant or whatever. Um, and they were, the, the subjects were told to attend or told to find within that image, the, the person or the car or the tree or whatever it might be. And they changed how uh, present these distracting factors were. And then they changed whether the factors that were distracting within the image were associated with the reward or with they weren't. And so they were basically assessing how able were you to find that thing that you were told to find with the presence of distractors or not to see if they had an effect on your, you know, the time for you to be able to find it or the accuracy of you to be able to find whatever it is that you're told to. So they're given a task basically. And then they used electrophysiology uh, or they used uh, electrophysiological recordings through EEG and uh, which is electroencephalography to look at the brain, how the brain uh, certain areas are, are, you know, quote lighting up or not lighting up. And they also used event related uh, potentials, which is just a little bit more specific of a thing to look at how the brain actually, um, it was responding during these tasks because one of the things that it's testing is uh, some previous evidence or, or there's some contradictory evidence, I guess, within the field. I don't know. I'm not really within this field, but it was laid out pretty nicely within the uh, introduction 
that, you know, perhaps by looking, you know, uh, from some of the previous studies that have looked at fMRI, so functional MRI, um, responses within the brain during distracting factors and not, uh, there was some contradictory evidence suggesting that within the visual field, something that is distracting may actually be actively suppressed in order to allow you to focus more solely on the task or whatever it is that you're trying to specifically find. And so uh, some of those results were chalked up to um, faulty techniques in recording because fMRI is, is looking mainly at the blood flow response to the brain and it might not be getting the, the time resolution scales or anything that's necessary in order to do that. Uh, and so there's other factors that go into these measurement techniques that may be giving a false implication that we are actually actively suppressing distractors in order to allow us to actually more wholly focus on whatever the task is at hand. And this, of, of course, kind of goes in contrary to the incentive salience hypothesis that just shows that, uh, you know, our attention is more or less just dictated by the evidence of reward associated with a particular object. And so, you know, the thing is, is that if in a pure incentive salience type of world, it would be a little bit concerning, basically, that you somewhat have no control over, uh, whether it be conscious or unconscious, control over getting rid of distractions. Uh, you know, so interpret that as you will. But, but basically... If there's a way to actively suppress distractors within our attention or actively suppress distractions from our attention within our visual field, we might have greater control over being able to attend to a certain task or object that we are trying to attend to. So what did they find? So within the study, uh, what they did find, which was interesting, is that while the reward-associated distractors, so these distractors that had a reward associated with them, they did draw attention, right? So they did distract a bit, but they didn't fully capture it. So it's basically like noticing a candy bar at a checkout, for example, like and not necessarily buying it. So you're putting your groceries up there, and you're like, ooh, candy bar. And you know that that candy bar gives you that feeling of reward. Uh, so you did notice it. It's not like it just wasn't being able to be noticed, but it wasn't distracting enough to completely take away the visual attention uh, from this specific task at hand. So I thought that was kind of cool. And so basically the, the brain showcased really its adaptability. When it recognized that these distractors is irrelevant, it was rapidly suppressing attention towards them. And I think that that's really important. So basically, if you're told to do a specific task, your brain is able to recognize that certain things within your visual field might be distracting. It's able to recognize that. If that candy bar is sitting there, if your phone is sitting there, your brain understands that it's a distracting factor and it can give you pleasure. However, it actively suppresses the attention towards that object in order to allow you to more focus on the task at hand. And so the neural imprint, basically, of, of the, the objects that are uh, distractors was even found to be weaker than, than neutral objects. And so what that means is that 
within, like I said, within a visual field, you have something that is the task that you're trying to focus on. You have a distracting factor that might give you pleasure. And then you have these neutral things that are just there. They don't really do anything for you. It's like, you know, looking at cement, for example, when you're looking at a scene of a house, you don't really notice the sidewalk that much. It's just neutral. But of course, it's within your visual field. And so it gets a certain amount of brain space, if you will, allocated to it. But what they found was that when you have this active suppression of these distractors, the representation in the brain of the distracting factor was actually less than that of the neutral factor, you know? And so it was it was kind of interesting. It's, it's basically saying that when you're really focused on something, your brain is able to actively suppress things that are supposed to distract you to the point that they are less important as far as your brain is considered than things that are just completely neutral. It's almost like, you know, when, when the age old, your dad's watching TV and you have a, you know, a better chance of, uh, getting him to say yes to going somewhere when you were a kid. And so you go up and he's super visually attended to that TV. And so he has like, just wipes out all of the other distracting factors. You could be banging a drum next to him and you could be, you know, writing on the walls with crayons and they're not going to notice because they're so focused on, that TV. And so you can go up and ask and be like, Hey, can I go to this party? And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, it's, it's, it's to the point where it's such a distractor to what it is that it's being attended to that it doesn't even register as even like a neutral type of response. And so I think that that's super cool because it's saying that there's an active ability of your brain to get rid of distractions. If the task that you're being given is important enough. So there's a built-in mechanism to filter out noise and really focus on what truly matters. And I think that that's really cool. So the, the you know, if we take just a quick other real-world implication, basically like if you're searching for a friend example, you know, in, in a crowd and you're 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 able to ignore all the advertisements, distraction and everything else so that your brain itself is able to help us to focus on a task. So think about like when you're in a, a mall or, you know, I don't know if anybody goes to malls anymore, but think about like if you're at a concert or something like that and you lost your friend, you're trying to find your friend and you're super heightened focus trying to find wherever that friend is. So you're scanning your gaze all over the place trying to find that person. You don't notice the people that are around, the music that's going on, the other, you know, the other signs that are being put up around you. You notice them less when you're actively searching for someone than when you're not. And I think that's kind of cool. So then the, uh, the paper also talks about how incentive salience uh, can play a role in, in other conditions like eating disorders um, and also um, addiction, which isn't all that surprising. Uh, and it gives some everyday life um, examples as well, but I think I kind of highlighted a lot of those. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's... Where this is really important is it gives rise to understanding how our brain deals with the things that we want to pay attention to and how it's actively able to suppress things that we don't want to pay attention to. And, you know, it's it's kind of crazy when you see, uh, you know, the, the different social media sites and how marketing, especially digital marketing, all that kind of stuff, uh, the, this is what they have to essentially exploit about the brain in order to draw your attention to something. And it's why you're able to pay attention to some things better than you are to others. 
And, you know, and especially when it comes to education, you notice that when you're trying to force someone to pay attention, to read something that they're not very interested in, suddenly all of those distracting factors become even more important. But if you're able to focus, if you're able to understand why you're doing a certain task and you're able to understand the importance and the reward that is given for actually focusing on the given task in hand, when you can have that happen, your brain is then better able to get rid of those distracting stimuli that are within your visual field that are clouding up your ability to focus. And so the study highlights, it underscores, if you will, the, the brain's remarkable adaptability. So we're, we're always constantly bombarded with information. And so the brain actually acts as a filter to uh, help us focus on what we find is truly important. So it's already been a half hour, so I just didn't want to go that long. But basically, um, www.theneuronetwork.org. If you have any other papers that you find that are kind of cool, you want to be reviewed, uh, see what our input is on them, please feel free to send them our way. Um, on the website has the contact information and all that kind of stuff. Um, Apple, Spotify, rss.com slash neural network. Uh, they also have um, posts on social media, oddly enough, given the fact of this uh, paper, but that's what, how it goes. So great study, very intriguing, uh, and uh, I got to say, it's actually a beautiful, I had to read an introduction twice, um, just sort of so that I got out of the context and then jump back into it, but cool figures, cool intro that really uh, paints a good story. So congratulations to the authors on a beautiful tra uh, beautiful manuscript and uh, giving some high impact research. So all right, bye.